Igawau acknowledges the traditional owners of the land upon which we record, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Morning, afternoon, and for the greater good, my name is Lil Silky, and welcome back to the Ego Hour podcast. Today, at long last, we're going to get a little bit academic and investigate a dominant trend that has defined blockbuster cinema of the past decade. A technique I, as of right now, I'm dubbing circumlocutory filmmaking. To understand this ironic collection of syllables, we have to begin with the wink. The power of the wink. Do you ever feel like an artist is speaking to you? Do you ever watch a movie, see a painting, or hear a song that, even though you're experiencing it for the first time, it immediately feels familiar? Whether it's a catchy melody, an evocative combination of colours, or maybe even a set of charming characters, sometimes you come across a piece of art that is just easy to enjoy, or at the very least, easy to understand. In 2021, I visited my parents and found them blasting a smooth groove track, passionately and effortlessly singing along to a song that I'd absolutely never heard. Now, I don't frequent the Spotify Hot Hits playlist or anything, but I consider myself informed enough to know when a song, movie, show, misogynistic male commentator, or meme is taking off. Yet there I was, completely oblivious to what this charming bopper was and how my parents had leapfrogged me in cultural fluency. The song in question was Cold Heart, a Dua Leaper and Elton John collaboration remixed by Pinnau that rapidly shot up the charts and reached number one in over 16 countries, entirely unbeknownst to me. So what the fuck happened and how did my parents seem to instantly know the song so intimately? Well, it turns out my parents hadn't developed overnight lyrical retainment capabilities, but actually, this contemporary earworm had started its burrowing decades before. Cold Heart, as I was hearing it, was a new song, yet the lyrics to this track were an amalgamation of four separate Elton John hits from the 70s and 80s. That existentially tinged chorus about not knowing when you'll come into contact with Up's diametrically opposed cousin? Yeah, that's actually a little ditty called Rocket Man, a 1972 hit that was so famous that it eventually became the title of Elton John's 2019 biopic. Now, Rocket Man wasn't exactly a house party staple in 2021. Yet, by the time Cold Heart was released, the song already had 49 years of spins, plays and streams under its belt. In digging up a well-loved song and giving it a fresh paint job, Elton and Dua were drawing upon a powerful dark force that allows art to leapfrog its competitors and ascend to popularity in no time. And that, folks, is the power of the wink. So, what is a wink? In their 2017 thesis, The Cinematic Wink, Representations of Winking in Screen Media, Harkness defines a wink as a conscious action used to send a message that a recipient must decipher. When using a wink, a speaker is packaging meaning in a shorthanded and subtle way to avoid exposition. Winks often function as punctuation, a gesture to signal a hidden meaning such as joking, secrecy, camaraderie or implication. Trey's 2005 work, What Are You Suggesting? Interpreting Innuendo Between ASL and English, extrapolates on coded communication. Trey writes that conversation requires a recipient to possess communicative competence, which, as well as vocabulary knowledge, refers to knowledge of contextualization cues that may code a message. Information such as where the message is being delivered, 
via what medium it is communicated and an awareness of cultural practices or insinuations that have shaped the message are often subliminal, but they are essential for true understanding. In many situations, a speaker will draw upon context so that they may be easily understood, but when sending shorthand or innuendo such as emojis, abbreviations and winks, the speaker may draw upon codes and conventions to tailor their message for a specific audience. It is important to note that if a wink is misunderstood, not noticed or rejected by the recipient, then the sender's intentions are made redundant and the gesture's meaning is lost. Historically, winks are signaled by the pronounced closing of one eye. However, in forums where the communicator does not physically present to the receiver, winks can be expressed in different ways. Harkness's investigation focuses on narrative texts and defines three kinds of cinematic winks present in films and television. One, the wink between characters. Two, the direct wink at the viewer. And three, the wink by the director. The first kind of wink, the wink between characters, is self-explanatory. Characters using winks within their diegetic world to signal hidden meaning or innuendo. The second kind, the direct wink at the viewer, is any pronounced meta-signal where a character breaks the fourth wall and winks to the audience. Finally, the wink by the director is the most flexible and refers to any message coded within the art's construction for the audience to derive meaning from. A familiar example of the director's wink is homage, where an artist imitates a feature from a famous work and adapts it for their new piece. In 2021, John Watts's Spider-Man No Way Home threw back to Sam Raimi's genre-defining 2002 Spider-Man on multiple instances. One of the most memorable is when, 19 years later, Norman Osborn repeats his infamous line, I'm something of a scientist myself. Popularized as a meme template in 2007, the quote became a popular punchline and an affectionate feature of the 2002 Spider-Man. When Watts slipped the line into No Way Home, it served to rally camaraderie and humor amongst fans of Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. Meanwhile, it was just a regular piece of exposition for viewers who misinterpreted the reference. A director's wink could also be a metatextual reference slipped into the mechanisms of a film itself. Michael Keaton's casting as a former superhero megastar in 2015's Birdman not so subtly takes on additional meaning thanks to his own success as Batman in the 80s and 90s film adaptations. Hiding messages within art is not limited to film and TV, however, and the director's wink is probably more appropriately titled as the creator's wink. For example, Norman Rockwell's 1960 work, Triple Self-Portrait, is a painting laced with rewarding references and allusions. Imparting a unique spin on the self-portrait, Rockwell's oil on canvas depicts the artist himself, seen from behind, looking into a mirror and checking his reflection as a reference for the self-portrait he is in the midst of painting. The metawork pulls back the curtain on the process and with its various details is multi-layered with commentary on what constitutes a self-portrait, how they are supposed to look, and how his own work will fit into the canon of famous self-images. The piece humorously features Picasso and Van Gogh's own self-portraits as guides, deprecates Rockwell's reputation of tidiness with a chaotic littering of stuff, and even satirizes nationalistic iconography by featuring a gloriously detailed American eagle at odds with a Roman-style helmet, decorating the mirror and easel respectively. And yet the winking doesn't even stop there, as Rockwell has separately detailed the ironic origin of the helmet, explaining that he purchased it in 1923, thinking it was a military antique, before learning it was actually a French firefighting helmet. Featured in his immortalization of self, perhaps its presence is a jab at the disconnect between earned and perceived prestige. 
Or maybe it's just an object he wanted to preserve forever in a charming wink. The message is the viewers to decipher. Why wink? Winking is a gesture of conspiracy. Two parties communicating in secrecy. As such, a wink is often sent and received with affection, further developing a relationship between the communicators. In their 2015 text, Joking Culture, Human Themes of Social Regulation in Group Life, Fine and DeSoci detail the importance of comedy within communities as a means of regulating order. The authors contend that joking helps individuals align together based on shared attitudes, behaviours and observations, a process which confirms and strengthens their connection. Comedic references, particularly ongoing gags, incentivizes joining and immersing in a group so that an individual can participate in the conversation and, importantly, the laughter. Alternatively, inside jokes ostracize those who do not understand them. Whilst winking is not exclusively used to generate comedy, they often strive for the same cooperative and unspoken benefits that Fine and Associate outline. Watts' Spider-Man and Rockwell's self-portrait both use creator's winks to establish rapport with viewers by adding a light-heartedness to their works. With their distinct winks, the two works endear themselves to the viewer by acknowledging the viewer, thanking them for their interest, and rewarding them with a respectful nod. Yet winks can also function in service of another key objective, one which the artists themselves might not care to admit or even be able to articulate. Sometimes, winking is a method adopted by an individual so as to circumnavigate a task or responsibility inherently placed upon them by audiences who engage with their content with a set of expectations and anticipations. That's right, sometimes winking is circumlocution. (laughs) Circumlocution is the use of many words when the same message could be delivered in few. Circumlocution can be adopted out of necessity or strategically. In their 2000 investigation, the effect of explicit training on successful circumlocution, a classroom study, Scullin and Jourdain outline the benefits of circumlocution when communicating in a second language. The paper explains how inexperienced speakers, such as students, can effectively piece together descriptors and adjectives to substitute for words they do not know. In this context, the ability to circumlocute is an essential tool for bridging a communication gap. Alternatively, circumlocution can also be used for more conniving effects, like deliberately obscuring information. Obeng's 1997 text, Language and Politics, Indirectness in Political Discourse, analyzes how political figures rely upon indirect communication styles to navigate risky or difficult subject matter without provoking scrutiny from a listener. Amongst an index of strategies, Obeng raises circumlocution and provocatively defines it as a variety of evasive tactics deployed by an interactant to protect himself or herself against faceful. This perspective highlights that circumlocution is not only the use of too many words, but can also be the deliberate use of less efficient, less informative, and less revealing words. The technique changes the power dynamics of a conversation by making the listener responsible for their own understanding. As well as distancing a messenger from any negative information they are sharing, the technique also allows a messenger to discredit unfavorable interpretations by blaming the listener. Notably, Obeng's rationale for circumlocution aligns with Fine and DeSoci's descriptions of jokes as social lubrication. Fine and DeSoci note that, because of their unifying capabilities, jokes can be drawn upon to diffuse tense situations. In one gesture, a joke can remind an audience of a presenter's good intentions, divert attention from a difficult subject matter, and segue to a more stomachable topic. 
In this context, joking functions as a subtle form of circumlocution leveraged to create a positive reception. Suddenly, the creator's wink must be considered with skepticism. Sure, it's charming when an artist acknowledges their audience, but isn't it a bit cheap? The Winking Superhero Okay, I've held off as long as I possibly can, but it's about time we talk about Marvel. In the 2010s, popular filmmaking, more explicitly than ever before, connected winking with wit and joking with earnestness. Comic book film adaptations, with Marvel as the industry leader, revolutionized the wink and weaponized it at a textual and subtextual level. Continuing the momentum generated by Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy and 2008's Iron Man, iconic vigilantes were adapted to the big screen in unprecedented numbers. But unlike earlier critical failures, including 2005's Fantastic Four and 2004's Catwoman, the new era of superhero movies drew actively from their source material and strove to satisfy fans of the original comics. Filmmakers and creative directors, including Kevin Feige, Zack Snyder, Joss Whedon, and Christopher Nolan, concluding his Dark Knight trilogy, unionized the nerds with the mainstream by mulching critically and commercially acclaimed narrative arcs and paper macheing them into contemporarily styled, easy to understand action adventure blockbusters. The films were pure spectacle, large scale, no expenses spared affairs that promised explosion and two plus hours of stuff happening. And as the franchises spawned sequels, prequels, spin offs, and reboots, the films became larger than themselves, mutating from standalone films into invitations to an episodic multimedia universe. The filmmakers created boundless stories where characters would metatextually refer to the previous films or, cunningly, tease a piece of comic book lore yet to reach the screens. Trailers, easter eggs, stingers and crossovers became winking currency, nods to the past and curtsies to the future. In fact, the characters, their stories and their brands themselves became a never-ending wink to the audience, congratulating them for their continued immersion into the cinematic universes. In the 2010s, Trey's prescription of communicative competence meant recognizing each superhero, maintaining an awareness of what they'd said and done in the last movie, and, in between releases, the mining of their comic book history for clues about what would happen in the next film. Just as Fine and DeSoci prescribe, the cinematic universes and their fan bases became idiocultures, rich with shared references and history. Capitalizing on this goodwill, the films increasingly incorporated comedy with nudge-nudge inside-joke tonality. Thor may have spoken with a bourgeoisie accent, but his lack of social awareness was repeatedly played for irony in his 2011 debut, whilst Hulk's illiteracy with villainous monologuing is a jarring delight when he cuts off Loki and repeatedly smashes him into the ground in 2012's Avengers. This type of light and inclusive humour proved incredibly successful amongst fans and quickly became a hallmark of Marvel's brand. Whereas Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy had revolutionised Batman by ditching the eccentricities and placing him in the middle of a heist movie at the turn of the decade, by the end of it, Hulk and Ant-Man were literally dropping tacos and doing away with the hard-shell melodrama associated with superheroes. The films further capitalised on an increasingly nostalgic, unashamedly self-aware audience championed by figures such as Tarantino, Carpenter and Paul Thomas Anderson in the 90s and 1000s. Emulating Tarantino's success with jukebox soundtracks, Guardians of the Galaxy was a box office phenomenon upon its release in 2014 thanks to its 70s-centric soundtrack, one that is celebrated in the film story itself. If that one was for the dads, then the franchise's subsequent allusions to social media were for the kids. By 2018, Wakandan princess Shuri was taking timeouts from Black Panther's villain stop-in to quip, 
What are those? A canonized 2015 vine. On a narrative, industrial, and metatextual level, Marvel's dominant run in the 2010s highlighted and perpetuated how creators' winks could satisfy audiences in a commercially unprecedented way. Naturally, Marvel's success was quickly replicated by competing film studios, causing 2010 cinema to descend into pop culture winkageddon. However, whilst Marvel may have mastered winking, the nostalgic, kitsch, ironic, and referential had already gained steam in decades prior. Again, Tarantino, PTA, and even Sancrosac cinephile Martin Scorsese frequently referenced the filmic canon in the 90s and 1000s, and in Marty's case the 70s and 80s too, within their films whilst cunningly using popular music of different eras to create multi-layered, metatextual meanings. Meanwhile, sarcastic filmmakers such as David Fincher and Mary Harron projected snarky skepticism onto the big screen in the 90s and 1000s with films that winkingly hide anti-consumerism ideals behind high drama narratives. Finally, rappers and hip-hop producers such as Grandmaster Flash, Dr. Dre, DJ Premier, Timbaland, Just Blaze and Kanye West indelibly popularized winking and music with sample-heavy beats that reimagined famous hooks, grooves and drum beats from the past. As the pop culture archives have grown, so too has winking, and it's no coincidence that the loudest era of the wink proliferated at the same time that the world at large gained access to both social media and smartphones. Suddenly, the entire history of recorded art was just a scroll away, and history's most enduring and loudest soapboxes too. The 2010s may represent a moment of critical mass, but art always has, and always will be, determined to remind the audience just how smart, funny, thoughtful, and compelling it is. Conclusion and the Death of Earnestness The purpose of this investigation was not to discredit winking in popular culture, but to highlight the mechanisms that have made it so prevalent and graciously accepted. Actually, that's a lie. It honestly was a hit piece determined to put winking away for good. I mean, come on, it's the 2020s, grow up. Today we have found out why the wink won't ever leave, so instead I will share a quote from Scullin and Jordan's Exploration of Circumlocution. On page 245, the authors conclude, The ability to circumlocute is one of the crucial strategies that has been identified as a means of compensating for imperfect mastery of a foreign language. What this means for the film going public is a dangerous dependence on winking in substitute for filmmaking proficiency. Marvel and blockbuster cinema's hybridization of action and comedy must be applauded for its success, but the dominant, generic transformation must also be considered for what is displacing, namely, artistic honesty and emotional vulnerability. When artists rely upon endearing winks of humor, sarcasm, self-deprecation and pop culture identification, they are casting protection around their work and ridding themselves of culpability. This effect functions at both a textual and metatextual level, as winking gives films a license to skip over sophisticated emotional beats with an oh shucks shrug, whilst the artists, tearing down the formalities of presentation, let themselves do the talking rather than the work itself. Painfully, the results aren't filmmaking catastrophes, which should at least have value as case studies in overambition or narrative faceplanting, but instead, the error of winking is marked by its distinctive mediocrity, and worse, the emotional apathy it encourages. In 2022, Uncharted has an over-the-top, far-from-reality, but enthralling conclusion, while centrally trading on an incredibly fun treasure hunt narrative. Yet the film is more memorable for its lame gags and winking nods to a generic audience. At one point, Tom Holland's Nathan has a crack at Mark Wahlberg's Victor for having too many apps open on his phone. A personable shout-out to... people who have smartphones? I don't know. 
Likewise, this year, many found Thor, Love and Thunder's low-stakes comedic stylings as disingenuous, yet the film is merely cranking the very tone that made its previous installment such a hit. Doctor Strange 2, House of Gucci, Cruella, Frozen 2, Star Wars 7-9, The Grey Man, although I was one of the dozens who actually enjoyed it. All massive films that received tepid, forgettable receptions thanks to their over-insistence upon winking looks to the past, nods to the future, and an overall failure to inspire emotional responses. As Trey writes in his investigation of innuendo across language barriers, explicating irony by calling it such or following innuendo with the tag, if you know what I mean, undermines the intent of the form. It's a linguistic rimshot. The speaker avoids being taken literally, but as a conversation style, the technique leaves him looking like the stereotype of a bad stand-up act. Hey, these are the jokes, folks. In 2022, the creator's wink is no longer a code, but a convention. A simple and replicable way to assure a base level of quality and audience affection. In an era abundant with stuff fighting for our attention, winking has created an artistic crutch for developing rapid, if monotonous, rapport with audiences, whilst protecting the filmmakers and studios themselves from criticism. However, it doesn't have to be this way, and a return to honest, vulnerable storytelling, complete with emotional beats and self-seriousness, can allow filmmakers to achieve genuine and memorable resonance with audiences while separating their work from the grayscale masses. As audiences, we must demand more, no longer settling for generic allusions to our generic metadata, but instead celebrating art that tries harder and gets more specific. As Dewar and Alton once so beautifully sang, and this is what I should have said, well I thought it, but I kept it hid. It's time not to keep it hid, behind winking circumlocutory art. Otherwise, we might just find ourselves with cold, cold hearts, unaware of where irony ends and earnestness begins. And on that note, it's time for me to tell you how I really feel about David Leach's Bullet Train. Bullet Train Review Just before we begin, I wanted to mention that I wrote and recorded this part of the podcast before the details of the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie court documents were released. Obviously, the information detailed in those is awful to hear, and we'll see what happens. Now, on to the review. Bullet Train is just a lot. Thanks to flashing titles, a bunch of famous faces, insistent British accent-based dialogue, and some weak CGI-centric stunts. Why do studios think we like CGI mega stunts? They're to action movies what soft drinks are to your teeth. Bad for them. Also, why is Brad Pitt so damn underutilized in this movie? He's only on screen for 60% of the movie, as instead we find the film overly populated with people who are most certainly not Brad Pitt. That's like writing a film review and filling it with analogies rather than analysis. What I aim to emulate within this response is Bullet Train's overemphasis on exhausting, parody-light self-awareness. The stakes couldn't be lower in this film thanks to a cliched protagonist arc and a resoundingly not-fresh cast of wise-cracking henchmen and type-subverting female leads, let alone the film's healthy dosings of cultural appropriation. The Russian mafia man is angry, and the Japanese characters and aesthetics within the film are merely three-dimensional props incorporated only to create a watered-down, narratively insignificant, quote-unquote, look. Although this film takes place on a bullet train heading to Kyoto, its events may as well have occurred in England on a blue, sentient, and talking coal train, 
a motif this film is prepared to exploit for every single dollar its licensing cost. Characters' names may flash in stylized neon katakana, but make no mistake, Bullet Train knows its audience cannot read Japanese. Performance-wise, this film is a familiar expression of tried-and-true archetypes, within a story structure so tightly shrink-wrapped that the actors are left no room for an inch of creativity. You may not have seen the remorseful hitman sitting across from the wisecracking Britons in the carriage over from the unassuming good girl and the proud Japanese man in a single movie before, but anyone who has engaged with Hollywood comedy action movies, and not the other way around, in the past 30 years has definitely come across these tropes. And yet even within these Chris Angel shackles, Brad is still so damn charismatic that I felt underserved. The effortless charm of Brad is still real perhaps increasingly so, as he's allowed to portray funny-looking fellows, and this film trades on it. The reassembled cast of Atlanta, meanwhile, are not so lucky, and are forced down the viewer's throat with quirky traits and in-your-face punchlines. Brian Tyree Henry's aforementioned train bits are occasionally funny, but they certainly overstay their welcome, as does his overbearing Cockney accent. Finally, Bad Bunny, or as I like to call him, Bit Bunny, is not in this film very much. Anyway, Bullet Train is a movie, and thanks to its intensely oversaturated colour grade and visually strobing editing, it will catch your eye on an HDTV soon. The filmmaking is familiar, and the narrative, and comedy, is extensive, distracted, and unfulfilling. Bullet Train speeds by as a movie experience devoid of genre, heart, or creativity, and a waste of Brad Pitt's casting costs. Bullet Train, two stars. So there you have it, a 3,332 word, six page essay that took me six plus weeks to write and record on circumlocutory filmmaking, followed by 538 words of honesty about why Bullet Train is net negative for your eyeballs and ear holes. The irony. Well, what do you think? Love my takes? Hate them? Follow me on Letterboxd at Lil Silky, subscribe to this podcast and follow our at Ego Hour podcast Instagram account. And tell me I didn't waste more than a month of my life on this single episode or scorn me with backlash. Please, just like any validation will do. Until next time, this has been another classic. Another classic or a fresh one. If we knew what we wanted, you'd be useless. Tell us what's in, tell us who's done. Another anti-